country and promised land, forbidden to eat for three years. Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus. Increment 191. And today's message, a marriage of Romans and Hebrews. I've said it many times in our study. We've come to Hebrews via Romans, and that's been a great advantage to us because our commentary has a unique flavor to it because of that. And I think you'll see today a couple of areas where Romans and Hebrews are a match made in heaven. And to that end, Father, we pray that you'll manifest the life and the livingness of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we carry about in our body his dying so that we may experience the manifestation of his life. May that death work in us in a way that causes life to work in many others. For we ask it in his name. Amen. The pastor teacher now makes a bold move to show that with the change of the priesthood from the Levitical to the priesthood prefigured by Melchizedek involves a necessary change of the law by which the Levitical priests were made priests. From here and on in through chapter 8 and perhaps we could say even into 9 and maybe even further, the teaching pastor shows the superiority of the new covenant which involves the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek as its mediator. Once again, the mediator is going to come into play in a heavy way in Hebrews. So once again, from here and on into chapter 8 and perhaps beyond that, the teaching pastor who wrote Hebrews shows the superiority of the new covenant which involves the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek as its mediator, and we're also going to see another word, mediator and guarantor, and not the old and outworn covenant given at Sinai, a covenant that was operational when the Levitical priesthood was still relevant. So the operational old outworn covenant goes coetaneously with the changeable Levitical priesthood, the transient Levitical priesthood. Now at this point I want to return to a fragment of a previously cited quote by Lonergan. Quote, that it is the way of God's justice to act through secondary causes and in accordance with their natures. The quote goes on to say, this is why God himself became human, that he might be a secondary and proportionate cause in restoring all things. Now you're going to see this even in the title and the printed version of this. The Latin word here used is omnia, which means all, and in star ando. You'll notice this little root star, S-T-A-U-R, which I believe 
may be closely associated with the Greek word stauros, which equals the cross. Omnia, all things, instarando, restored. And I would interpret that as all things restored by the universal impact of the cross of Christ. But this is something that's building. I'm building the doctrine of instauration and have been now for several series, including perhaps all the way back to Revelation. I'm building a doctrine on the basis of a thousand hints, not just directly writing it out. But that's the Latin version of Ephesians 1.10, the restoration or the recapitulation of all things, omnia instarando. So let me say it again. This is why God himself became human, quoting Lonergan, that he might be a secondary and proportionate cause in restoring all things, Ephesians 1.10, and in making all things new, in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Those two verses belong together. Those two processes belong together because the restoring of all things is the making new of all things. It's a universal restoration, a universal new creation in which all of created reality is invested with eternality, the eternal life of God. Now the reason I'm referring once again to this fragment of a quote by Lonergan is in order to accentuate the point and put a sharp edge, perhaps, on the mediatorship of the man Christ Jesus. Because the mediatorship of the man Christ Jesus, there is one God and one mediator between God and all of humanity, that's the man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus mediatorship means precisely what he said, what Lonergan said, that God himself became human that he might be a secondary and proportionate cause in restoring all things and making all things new. And that's the way of God's justice, a theme that we introduced on New Year's, our New Year's message. The second reason that I want to refer again to this Lonergan excerpt is because it is the fundamental fact and principle beneath the whole idea of Jesus' vocation as mediator and archpriest. He is that mediator and great archpriest because God willed to become human, to be a secondary cause as well as the primary cause of the universal restoration and of universal salvation to say nothing of our own personal, individual salvation. That God became human to be a proportionate cause of the universal recapitulation means that Jesus Christ represents all of mankind as a man to God. He represents to God all of humanity. And that Christ Jesus represents God as God to all of humanity. Jesus Christ, God having become human, stands in for all of humanity before God. On the other hand, Jesus stands in, as it were, for God before man. 
as God. And to see him is to see the Father in John 14, 7. And the scripture says, no man has ever seen my face and lived, says God. But now we see the Father in Jesus Christ and indeed we die, but then we live again. We see Jesus and in seeing Jesus, we see the Father to see, whom to see is to die, but then to live again. Exodus 33.20, John 1.18, John 6.40, John 14.7. A lot of the passages from John come into play here. I'm going to leave it just like that because what the last couple sentences I mentioned to you can really be elaborated into about five messages. We see Jesus. That's the name of our series now 190 hours long. And in seeing him, we see the Father. We see Jesus, and in seeing him, we also see our single human representative before the Father. Our faith in Jesus is not, repeat, not the secondary cause for universal salvation, or even our own personal salvation. Jesus' faithfulness is that. Jesus is God having become human to be the secondary and proportionate cause of eternal and of universal salvation. That's the way of God's justice. That's why both God and the Lamb I'm going to say this carefully. That is why God and the Lamb, God the Father and the Son, who has become human and then having become sin, is to be worshipped. The reason the Son is called the Lamb is because the one who became flesh also became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. And so I'll say that again. Jesus is God, having become human, to be the secondary and proportionate cause of eternal and of universal salvation. And that's why both God and the Lamb, equally, are equally to be worshipped. Revelation 7.10 says, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. You can compare that with salvation is of the Lord. It is. The salvation is of the Lord. The Father who is seated on the throne and the Son who is the Lamb as well as the Holy Spirit who actualizes salvation in every individual person during the course of this second divine mission. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit is also worthy of worship, therefore, as the one who makes salvation effective in each individual person. It is God working in us to will and to do of his own good pleasure. God the Holy Spirit. And that's Philippians 2.13 and Titus 3.5 and 6. Now if we were to marry Romans with Hebrews, 
And it is certainly not just legitimate, but also profitable to do that. Jesus as the archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek is also the one who was justified through his own faithful obedience to the extent of death, even the death of the cross in Philippians 2.8. And that puts a sharp edge on the fact that Jesus' death on his cross, Jesus' unique death on his unique cross was a singularly incomprehensible death in which, as the Hebrews author proclaimed, Jesus experienced death for everyone. Philippians 2, 8 through 11 certainly accords perfectly with all of Hebrews because it contains the theme of Jesus' ultimate humiliation followed by his inimitable exaltation. Getting back to Romans. In Romans, Jesus is portrayed by the inspired word of God as, quote, the righteous one, hadikaios, hadikaios, who lives, please notice that, who lives, Romans 1.17, because of his faithfulness. My righteous one will live because of his faithfulness is the right way to interpret Romans 1.17, which is a quote, an adapted quote of Habakkuk 2.4 and is the thesis verse of Romans. Romans 1.17, the thesis verse for the entire epistle, Paul's last epistle, arguably, Romans, when it's Christologically interpreted, and I think it should be, reveals Jesus Christ to be the righteous one who lives. Please note the connection between Romans 1.17 and Hebrews 7.8. He lives because of his own faithfulness. Jesus lives forever in resurrection because of his faithfulness. That is, his obedience to the extent of the death of the cross. His faithfulness resulted in his own justification. A revealed truth made plain by a Christological interpretation of Romans 3.26, in which God is revealed to be righteous, or we could say from our recent insight, savingly just, and the justifier of that one, meaning Jesus, by means of faithfulness, namely Jesus. I'll say that again. It's a tricky translation, but it's the right one. And it's not found in, well, I couldn't find it in any of the translations I have. But in the Greek, it comes across as God is revealed in Romans 3.26 to be righteous or just, savingly just, and at the same time, the justifier of that one by means of faithfulness, namely Jesus. Romans 3.26, therefore, shows God to be savingly just, but also the justifier of Jesus. And he justifies Jesus because of Jesus' faithfulness. You think he justified Jesus because of your faithfulness? Do I think because of mine? Of course not. 
He justified Jesus because of Jesus' own faithfulness. But the good news is, and that we'd call the gospel, is that when he justified Jesus, he justified all in Jesus because of Jesus' faithfulness. Neither are you or I justified by our faithfulness, our faith, our belief, our anything. We are justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ by which God justified Jesus Christ and in him all of humanity, once in Adam. Now I'm going to iron this out for you so you see it in its proof in the scriptures. By a Christological interpretation of Romans 3.26, in connection with Romans 1.17, again, an adapted quotation of Habakkuk 2.4, Jesus was justified and lived on the basis of his own faithfulness. He was justified by God, the just and righteous judge. Now this blends sweetly with the declaration of Romans 6-7 that we've looked at in an earlier message. That, quote, the one who died, close quote, was liberated. But that word liberated there in Romans 6-7 also is, can be translated as justified because it's the word dikai-a-o. Dikai-a-o. There's omicron and omega both together, back to back. Dikai-a-o means in that case to be liberated from sin, but it also means to be justified. And so Paul, I think, used that as a nuanced way to say that Jesus was justified. Now why not? Because 1 Timothy 3.16, speaking of the mystery of godliness, or the mystery of rightly directed worship, says that Jesus was justified by the Spirit. Justified by the Spirit means the Spirit who raised him from the dead also justified him in that sense. God, who raised him from the dead through the Spirit, also justified him. And that again is 1 Timothy 3.16. So then, Romans 1.17 blends with 3.26 of Romans. And it shows that the one who died was also liberated or translated or justified, rather, from sin. When we understand, and this is an insight, I'm communicating an insight to you. When we understand that Jesus' faithful obedience to the extent of the death of the cross, which he endured for all of humanity, led to justification and life to all of humanity once in Adam, then we must look at Jesus not only as the one who died, but also as the one who was justified for all even justified as all. Consequently, as 2 Corinthians 5.14 declares, that when one died for all, then all died. Follow this now. 
as 2 Corinthians 5.14 declares that when one died for all, then all died, so we can say, bringing in Romans 117, 5.18-19, that when the one who died was justified, all were justified. And this plays perfectly harmoniously with Romans 4.25 that Jesus was raised for our justification, quote, raised for our justification, close quote. When he arose from the dead by the divine action of God the Father through the Holy Spirit, Romans 1.4, Romans 6.4, 1 Timothy 3.16, he also arose justified. He was given both life and justification in his resurrection. And this is notable because Romans 5.18 not only says that he justified all, but that he gave justifying life to all. Justification and life to all. And all means all. In Christ, all will be made alive. So then, when he arose from the dead, by the divine action of God, through the Holy Spirit, he arose justified. Jesus was given both life and justification in his resurrection, but not only for himself, for all. I don't think it was accidental that Paul used the word all 77 times in Romans. Count them. Whereas Romans 5.18 states, quote, so then, as through one, as through one, meaning one man, Adam, sin came and condemnation to all people, so through the righteous act of one, the man Christ Jesus, came the justification and life to all people. One died for all. One was justified for all. All died with Jesus and all will be made alive in him and are justified in him. You get the idea the gospel is all about Jesus? It's all about him. It's all about God's son. Not about you. It's not about me. It's not about the world. It's about God's son. Paul's irrefutable logic follows splendidly in Romans 5.19, which says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, that disobedience being unfaithfulness, that's my additional comment, many were constituted as sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, meaning Jesus Christ, the many were constituted as righteous. To be constituted as righteous is to be justified. The many there also, as we've shown a thousand ways in the past, that's a slight hyperbole, but only slight, means all. The many is made equivalent to the all in Romans 5:18 and 19. Both of these verses in turn allude to Isaiah 53, 11, which keeps jutting up 
in today's message as well as in last, the last increment. Both of these verses, 518 and 19 of Romans, allude to Isaiah 5311, where the second Isaiah prophetically portrays Jesus as, quote, Yahweh's righteous servant, who, quote, by his painful ordeal will justify many. That many found in Isaiah 53:11 is an understatement for all. And Paul knows this and says so in Romans 5:18 where he actually interprets the many that are justified by the righteous servant in Isaiah 53:11 as all of humanity over the course of all time in what I like to call a diachronic universal redemption. On top of all this, and there's always something to put on top of all this, go beyond, both Hebrews, especially in our very verses under consideration, Hebrews 7, 11, and 12, which I hope you can turn to, the law is brought in with an accent on its provisional and transient nature. Let's start first with Romans 5.20 my translation of Romans 5.20 and 21, with a little help from the New Jerusalem Bible and our recent treatment of it. Romans 5.20, moreover, the law slipped in as a side issue so that the trespass, meaning the trespass among humankind, would increase. Why would God do, I ask this question, why would God do something to increase the trespass of mankind? I'll tell you why. To accentuate his grace, that's why. But where, in fact he says it in the next part of 520 of Romans, but where sin hyperabounded, why did it hyperabound? Because of the law. Grace hyperabounded much more to the end that, or to the result that, just as sin, capital S there because it speaks of sin as an apocalyptic enemy, just as sin reigned in death, meaning over the whole human race, so grace will reign through God's saving justice or righteousness, resulting in eternal life. That's the life of the coming age for the whole human race through Jesus Christ our Lord. Phenomenal. The transience of the law, therefore, is accentuated in Romans 5.20 as it is in our passage, Hebrews 7, 11 to 12, which reads like this. Hebrews 7, 11 to 12. Again, the transient law is brought in to show the transience, the temporary nature, the provisional nature, the passe nature of the Levitical priesthood, which supported the law. Hebrews 7, 11 to 12, my translation. If then completion was reached through the Levitical priesthood, and again, that's the only place where we see that 
term, the Levitical priesthood, in all of Hebrews. L-E-U-I-T-I-K-A-E-S. And then if you make that U of V, it's Leviticus. And then the word priesthood, hard breathing, H-I-E-R-O, hero, sunes. Leviticus, hero, sunes means the Levitical priesthood. If then completion or perfection was reached through the Levitical priesthood, parenthesis, for under it the people received the law, close parenthesis, why was there still a need for another priest to arise, quote, in the order of Melchizedek, close quote, and who is not said to be in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. That is, the law that makes them priests or commands them to be priests. David G. Peterson is certainly on target when he writes, and I've cited him previously before. David G. Peterson is right on target when he writes the following. The weakness of the law as a means of relating to God is thus linked to the weakness of the priesthood that supported it. God's intention to change the priesthood was revealed when Psalm 110.4 was written. 110.4, good buddy. The point I'm making in all of this, though, is that the one who died and who was justified and who stands before God in heaven is justified for all. He stands before the Father who sees him as the righteous one for all. In fact, Jesus Christ is the righteous one and the expiation propitiation, not just for the sins of Israel, not just for the sins of Christians, not just for the sins of the so-called elect, but for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. The point I'm making, therefore, is that the one who died and was justified and stands before God in heaven is justified for all and represents all of humanity as justified. He's the same person as the great archpriest after the order of Melchizedek. He's one and the same man, the God-man of Psalm 110.4, Septuagint 109.4 fame. In this regard, Romans and Hebrews is a marriage made in heaven. Moreover, John agrees with Paul in Romans and the pastor-teacher who wrote the homily called Hebrews, calling again, and I emphasize this again, Jesus Christ the righteous one, Hodikaios. Same as in Romans 1.17, 1 John 2.1, the righteous one, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous servant, same man, Isaiah 53, 11. 
John agrees with Paul in Romans and the PT in Hebrews calling Jesus the righteous one, the expiation, propitiation, not only of the sins of Israel or the sins of Christians or the sins of the elect for the Calvinists out there but of the sins of the whole world that's all of humanity over the course of all time first John 2 1 to 2 Jesus Christ the righteous one first John 2 1 Romans 1 17 Habakkuk 2 4 is God having become human to be a secondary and proportionate cause of the restoration of all things and the making of all things new indeed this is our great archpriest this is who he is Hebrews 7 12 again for where there is a change of the priesthood there must also be a change of the law that is the law that makes them priests the law that which needed to be changed required that only men from the tribe of Levi could be made priests. But in Psalm 110.4, Septuagint 109.4, another priest is revealed. And it's subsequent to and after the Levitical priesthood. And now we know it's Jesus. Jesus didn't come from the tribe of Levi, but from the tribe of David, a royal tribe. Remember, Melchizedek was a priest and a king. From the tribe of David, who was inspired to write Psalm 110, which is the Septuagint 109. So if there was to be a priest who was also the son or descendant of David, whom God the Father tells to sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footrest for your feet, then this priest comes from the tribe of Judah and not the tribe of Levi. <clears throat> Consequently, the law that made priests from the tribe of Levi had to be superseded by God himself who declared someone from the tribe of Judah to be a priest forever. Amen. We're done.